good. And so, you know, when I was a little boy, I thought God was a spaceman. I read a book called Chariots of the Gods by a man called Eric von Deineken. And I went to the cinema when I was about 10 years old, 11 years old, to watch a documentary about this. And his, his idea was that God was a spaceman and because of his advanced technology and all of the rest of it, we thought he was a god. And we thought what he did with this technology, we called them miracles. And I guess everyone's got their own kind of idea of what God is like. Some of it's not as extreme as thinking he's a spaceman. You know, but some people, God is, is the angry judge of the whole earth. Who's waiting with vengeance to strike down sinners. For other people, he's, he's holy, he's unreachable, he's, he's a way up in the sky and you, you can never get to him. And so what happens in the first century in Israel, you have this man, Jesus, going throughout the land to a nation that believe they're God's special people and he begins telling them what he knows about God. And he's saying to them, you know, everything you've learned about God, everything you think you know about him, you've got it wrong. God's not like you think he is and he doesn't behave the way you think he should. And this is, this is quite shocking because for the religious Jews, their whole reason for existence was to preserve the knowledge of God and the ways of Israel. And so no wonder they got angry with Jesus when he was saying, you've got it wrong. No one knows the Father except the Son. That, that's like saying to the Jews, you know nothing and I know everything. That, that's what they were hearing Jesus say. And we get little glimpses throughout the Gospels. You know, in, in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus comes and says to various different men, come and follow me. And once they start following him, he teaches them all about his Father. So we see through Matthew chapter 5 and 6, he's talking all about the Father. And in the Gospels, around 200 times he speaks about Father. You know, he's saying, this is how you pray. You don't pray, dear Lord Jesus, you pray, our Father in heaven. He says to the Samaritan women in John 4, this is how you worship, because Father is seeking worshippers who worship in spirit and truth. And so he's always pointing to the Father, never himself. And we come, you know, there's little bits, like I said, uh, Luke 12, don't worry, children, because it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Elsewhere in Matthew, he says, don't worry about what you'll say when you stand before kings and rulers, because it will be the spirit of your father giving you the words to say. And so we've got all these little pictures of what father's like. You know, if you're evil and know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father give good gifts to his children or give good gifts to those who ask him? All these little vignettes, these little snapshots of Father's nature, character, his love, his attitude towards us. But then we come to a passage where we get a, a much fuller picture of what he's like. And it's quite a familiar passage of scripture in, in Luke 15. You know, Jesus tells the story about the shepherd losing a sheep and going out to find it and bring it back to the flock. He tells the story of a woman who loses the coin from her wedding headdress and tears her house apart until it's found again. And then he tells the story of a man who has two sons. 
And he said, the younger son said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. And not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here am I starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against you and against heaven. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father interrupts him. He says, but the father said to his servants, quick, you, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put the ring on his finger, put sandals on his feet, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard the music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, notice he doesn't say when my brother comes home, he said, when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you're always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And we call this passage of Scripture the story of the prodigal son. I think that's not a good title for it. Do you know what prodigal means? So why do we use it then? Prodigal actually means to be wastefully and lavishly extravagant. Yeah, exactly, Simon. It's the prodigal father. He is lavish and extravagant with his generosity and kindness and love and goodness. And that's how I think of it. I think of it as the prodigal father. Or you could call it the story of the lost sons. Because even though one of them stays at home, he's still estranged from his dad. He doesn't know his dad at all. And Jesus is telling this story, not about a random man with a couple of sons, but he's telling the story about his father. And the sons represent the, the people of Israel. The younger son represents those who are not religious. The older son represents those who are religious. Both of them offspring of the same God. Father, as Jesus calls him, Abba. And so he's not telling a story about how to bring the backsliders home or bring the lost home. He's telling us a story that gives us a, 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 a fuller picture of what this father is really like contrary to what Israel thought he was. 
You know, Jesus' mission was to reveal the Father. That's why John says in John 1.18, No one has ever seen God, but God the one and only who is at the Father's side or who has come from the Father's bosom, He has made Him known. And so Jesus tells us about this Father who, whose Son comes and asks for His inheritance. I mean, look at the Father's reaction. I don't know, for those of you with, with families and if your kid came and said, I want all of this now. I want what's mine. You'd probably slap them. <laughs> or at the very least, give them a boot up the backside and say, get to your room. <laughs> You're grounded. <laughs> this, this father, there's no argument. There's no shouting. There's no falling out. The father gives him what he asks for. I mean, that's actually quite rude of the young son to come to the father and say, basically, Dad, I wish you were dead so that I could get my hands on your money. And instead of being punished, he's rewarded. And the father says, here you are. And he divides his property between the, his sons. I mean, this boy should be punished. He should, the scripture says quite clearly, a rebellious son... A, dis a son who dishonours his father and his mother should be stoned. This boy should be punished for his, his cheek. And instead, the father pours his generous heart upon him and says, here you go, son. There's a, a portion of your inheritance. It's funny, isn't it, how when God blesses people that we think aren't as good a Christian as us? Or is that just me? I, when I get annoyed about God blessing people that aren't as good a Christian as me, <laughs> that it gets us really upset, doesn't it? It's like, how dare God, that, how come I don't get checks for a thousand pound and, and that reprobate gets them? I, I mean, sorry, that brother gets them. <laughs> and God just shows love and concern to everyone. Well, it's inevitable, isn't it? Once the son gets his money, he's, he's going to leave home. He's going to stand on his own two feet. Um, and he makes a mess of it. He leaves. He doesn't just leave home. He leaves his father's country, village, religion, culture. He doesn't just go to the next country, but it says that he went to a far-off country, a distant country. He couldn't get far enough away. And it seems as though he's rejecting his heritage and everything else. And his brother said that he's, he's heading off into a life of debauchery. Because he said, um, this son has squandered your, your property with prostitutes. Well, how does, his, how does the brother know that? He didn't have Facebook in those days or Instagram or anything. There were no photos of him dancing in a brothel or anything. How did the son, the son just made, the older son just made that up? We've got no proof that he spent his money with prostitutes. Wild living, all we know is that he partied, he, he probably drank his money and spent it on food and drink. And but we don't have any details of what he did. It's not like he was writing letters home saying, I met this woman and, you know. You see, we have this older brother who represents the religious crowd and this younger brother who represents the rest of Israel. And the religious people hated the ordinary people. They were always judging them. You know, we see the, the picture, don't we, when... The, the Pharisee and the sinner is at prayer and the Pharisee is standing there going 
God, I thank you I'm not like this sinner, but I tithe, I pray, I do all of these good things. And the, the sinner is just saying, God, I'm a sinner, please forgive me. And so we have this brother judging the younger brother. And I wonder if that's why he left home. If Jesus is saying, you know, the reason why the ordinary man in the street doesn't like your religion is because of the way you judge him. And he can't get far enough away from you. And I wonder if that's what happens in society. Then we come that, you know, you're a sinner, you're going to hell unless you repent and you become like me. The worst thing, in, you know, when, I, when, when I, I used to meet some Christians before I was a believer and they would, they would try and witness to me, the last thing I wanted to be was like them. And so Jesus is saying, the reason they don't want to be like you is because you judge them so harshly. And you even make up things about what they're like. You know, spending your money with prostitutes. Well, there's no proof of that. But anyway, the son heads off. Can't get far enough away from that judgmentalism and, and narrow-mindedness. But he messes up. He loses all of his money and when the money's gone, all the friends are gone. And he sinks to the lowest point that a Jewish boy can sink to. He goes to feed pigs, unclean animals. Don't know how long he's doing that for, but he's so hungry and so fed up and so annoyed with himself that he thinks, I'll go home and I'll persuade my dad to let me become a servant. And hopefully I'll keep him happy that way and I won't get stoned to death. <coughs> it's kind of like sometimes I hear the gospel presented, you know, come to Jesus, be a servant. And all the time, when we're walking with that mentality of just being a servant to try and please God and get into his good books and avoid punishment, we're missing the homecoming to the embrace of the Father. I love the patience of this father where I don't know was he going out there every single day looking for his son because it says while he was a long way off his father saw him he must have been looking down the road he wasn't just passing by and glancing and go oh that must be my son coming away in the distance but he was looking I don't know perhaps did he go out on the porch every, every lunchtime or every evening and, and stand there thinking I wonder where he is. I wonder when I'll ever see him again. I wonder will he ever come home. What incredible patience. To give him what he wanted, knowing that he was going to mess it up. But was willing to wait until he came to his senses and decided to come home. You know, God our Father is incredibly patient with us. That's why Paul can say he's not counting men's sins against them. You know, love keeps no record of wrongs. He's incredibly patient with us. He puts up with our servant mentality, our slavery mindset and behavior because all he wants to do is ultimately bring us into the place of his embrace. And so he's patient and waits until our hearts are in the right place to be brought into the embrace. You know, I told my story about 10, 20 years he's trying to talk to me about being a father to me. But my heart wasn't in the place to receive that. 
But he patiently persisted in speaking to me every so often, John, I'm your dad, I'm your father. Until I came to the place where I would let him embrace me. And so this revelation of the father's love, this isn't about sinners avoiding falling into the hands of an angry God. It's the story of a father whose children have wandered off and become lost and he just wants to welcome them home. He wants to put his arms around them and say, I love you. I've always loved you. And that's the thing in this story. The father hasn't changed. The son has been changed by his experience, hasn't he? He's lost everything. He's, his clothes are probably ragged. I mean, when he's coming home, he's got no transport, no money to buy transport. He's walking home, he's sleeping under hedges and in ditches and goodness knows what. And that experience changes a man, changes a, a woman. It does something to you. You know, I've been homeless, I've, I've slept outside, I've slept in building sites and stuff. It changes you. But it didn't change his father. In fact, it probably increased the love in his heart when he finally saw him coming home. This boy left home as a son, but thinks that somehow because of the way he's lived, because he's been away for so long, that he's no longer a son, that he's been disqualified. And he's no longer, he no longer has a place in his father's affections. But that's not how the father sees it. Our father has not given up in humanity. Your sins, your failures, they have not changed his attitude towards you. It doesn't change how he treats you. That's why he says in Malachi, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you are not destroyed. It's like Adam in the garden. When Adam sinned, you know, Adam and God would come into the garden in the cool of the day. Adam would stop whatever he was doing, subduing the animals or planting a garden or something. And he'd come and walk with the Father in the cool of the day. Now, this day after he sinned, Adam didn't come into the garden to walk with God. He put on fig leaves and went and ran and hid in the bushes, in the trees. So he changed how he approached God. But God still came into the garden to meet with Adam. See, when Adam sinned, it didn't change God's approach to man. It changed man's approach to God. And the whole thing about this revelation, the whole thing about the gospel is that man changes his approach back to coming to fellowship with his father. Adam changed his way of relating to, to God. God didn't change his way of relating to Adam. That's why he comes with the cloak of skins and puts them around Adam. Unfortunately, when he puts them out of the garden, it's out of love because he sees what the man will become if he lives forever, what sin will do to him, how it will destroy him and corrupt him and erode. And he'll just become full of horror and despair and hopelessness. And so he says, we need to put him out of the garden to prevent that happening to him. His love for Adam never changed and this father's love for his son did not change. He was still the same father he was when the boy left home. But the boy was a different son. And I love the fact that th this father isn't standing there with his arms crossed and his toes tapping thinking, oh, wait till I get my hands on him. I've been worried sick, I'm going to kill him. It doesn't do that. There's no thought of punishment or correction. 
He just wants to bring him home. He just wants to have him in his arms again. Just like the Lord didn't punish Adam in the garden, this father had no idea, no thought of punishing his son in his ragged state. He wasn't angry with him, just as the Lord wasn't angry with Adam. We think that somehow our sin has changed God, but it's not. Our sin has changed us. Adam's sin changed him. This boy's experiences changed him. It didn't change his dad. The father of the garden, I've said this before, the father of the garden is the same father now. And I know it's crazy theologically because we've got this theological idea that God punishes the sinner. But this father has no thought of punishing his son. Instead, his son's coming home distressed, hungry, ragged, and his only thought is to come and comfort him. Paul says in in 2 Corinthians um, chapter 1, he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles. It doesn't say he punishes us, he shouts at us, he corrects us in our troubles. It says he comforts us in all of our troubles. You see, the invitation of the gospel is to come into Father's embrace, not to escape his, his wrath or his punishment, but to experience his love. And when the son comes home, he, he doesn't stand there and say, OK, son, these are the things you need to do in order to be accepted back into the family. These, this is the ceremony you must perform. This is the religious cleansing you must go through. He doesn't do any of that. You know, this boy's coming home, he's thinking, if I work hard, if I become one of the servants, then at least I'll have a place in my father's house. He might not treat me like a son anymore, but at least I'll be there and I'll be close and I'll be getting fed. I won't go hungry. He's coming home, he, he knows the law. He's expecting anger, rejection, punishment. And I don't know how many times he must have rehearsed that speech on his way home. Sleeping in the fields and under the trees and all of the rest of it. I've sinned against heaven and against you. No, that sounds really arrogant. I need to be more humble. Father, I have sinned. No, that sounds a bit too... And he's, he's trying to get this speech right. That'll make him acceptable to his dad. And so he's nervous, he's, he's anxious, he's a little bit wary on his homecoming. Because he's thinking, I can't expect to be received as a son. But if I perform a servant's role, who knows what will happen in the future? But as I said earlier, fathers get enough servants. Hebrews tells us that the angels are those who serve us, inheriting salvation. And so he's, he's not thinking about how to punish his son or correct his son. And he's not trying to fix him. You know, there's, he's not saying, okay, what, this is what you need to do to deserve my love. This is what you need to do in order to be welcomed or at least be accepted as belonging here. But he, instead, with open arms, with joy, with kisses, with warmth, he embraces his son. And it's, when I read this and I began to see this, I began to understand, Father is not trying to fix me. 
What he wants is for me to experience him loving me. Because his love being poured into my heart begins to touch the woundedness, the brokenness. It begins to heal my heart. It begins to make my heart whole as I, as I, I experience his comfort instead of the false comforts that I, I used to run after. And I wonder, were the Jews listening to this story, the religious Jews, and Jesus talks about the father running to the son, maybe they thought the father was going to pick up the first stone. <laughs> and that's not what happens. I think the guys listening, the religious people listening, the teachers and scribes, they're just like the elder brother. They were indignant. They were, they were furious that the father did the wrong thing. He broke the rules. I mean, he hitches up his robe and exposes his, his legs and probably his, his groin in order to run to his son. That was not the custom of the day. That's not how dignified people behaved. But in addition to, to the cultural laws, he broke the law of Moses. Because the Bible says that someone doing the things the son has done with the pigs and everything, he becomes unclean. And if you touch him, you become religiously unclean. And yet the father throws his arms around him and hugs him. More than hugs him, he embraces him tight to his chest. And someone who's unclean should be taken outside of the camp for seven days so that they can be made clean again. <coughs> What's the father do? He takes him into the house. This son should be rejected and punished for the dishonour and shame that he's brought to the family. Instead, he's celebrated. He's broken the law. He should be stoned. But the father kisses him. This son has forfeited all of his rights. Yet he's given the ring of sonship, the cloak of sonship, shoes that servants don't wear. You know, the whole idea of becoming sons, I think I described it the other day, it's about inheritance. And it involves having a cloak put upon you and the father saying, this is my son whom I love. And that's him saying to all of the witnesses, this is the one who will inherit all of my, what, all of my belongings. And so this son comes home and he's reinstated immediately. He's given this cloak that says, you're, you're my son, you're my, my, you're my heir. He's given the ring of sonship that's part of that same ceremony. The son has lost everything and it's not just any old robe. It's the best robe in the house that's put on him. He's in rags, he's in tatters. He comes home hungry and the best that they, they have on the farm is fed to him. And the father doesn't do the right thing. He does the wrong thing. This boy has dishonoured his family, his father, community, synagogue. He's brought shame to them. And the father didn't do the right thing from the very beginning. He should not have given him the inheritance. You know, I think the boy was just so confident in the goodness of his father that he knew if he asked for it, he would receive it. What a change when he comes home and doesn't think he'll, he'll receive a welcome. But this father should have said, well, why do you want the money? What are you going to do with it? 
Now, when the son comes home, he should have sat him down and said, you know how serious this is, what you've done? Can you promise me you'll never do it again? He didn't do any of that. He didn't put him on, on three months probation. You know, he didn't have the meeting with him saying, well, let's put you on trial for three months and we'll have a meeting every Friday afternoon, see how you're progressing. You know, and we'll, we'll see at the end of three months what, where you're standing is. He didn't do any of that. And what Jesus is saying is, God did the wrong thing. Because this story is about his father. His father broke the law. <laughs> God broke the law of Moses. He broke the law of the Bible. And we see that more than once in the scriptures. Because Jesus said, I truly tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees the father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son does also. And so, Jesus is faced with a woman caught in adultery. The law says she should be stoned. Jesus convinces everyone not to stone her. Not only did Jesus break the law, he convinced the religious people to break the same law. He goes through Samaria, which no good Jew does. The Sumerian, Sumerians were the people who came back from the exile and couldn't prove their lineage. And so therefore, as far as the pure Jews were concerned, they were half-breeds. They were outcasts and unclean people. They were, they were no different from Gentiles. And so you avoided Samaria. On journeys, you went around Samaria to avoid making yourself unclean. What does Jesus do? He walks through it. And he makes himself doubly unclean because he speaks to a woman alone with no one else present. On the Sabbath, he walks through the cornfields with his disciples and they're all picking corn and eating it. He healed a man on the Sabbath. He goes into the temple with some rope that he's twisted together and he beats people with it. And he turns tables over and chases them all out. Opens the cages of the animals and everything. That's not very Christian, is it? It's not very nice. But he said, I only do what I see my father doing. God broke the law. And he did it for one reason. That his sons would know that they're loved. He wanted his sons to know he was loved. And love is a higher law. That's, what, that's half of what Paul teaches in his letters. That love is a higher law. You see, this God... This father, he's not nitpicking. He's not scrutinizing everything you do and everything you think and everything you say to make sure you deserve blessing. That's not who he is. He's not blessing you and loving you because you meet some sort of religious criteria. He celebrates over you. He wants to embrace you and kiss you and hug you. He's not sitting his son down to lecture him about how wrong he was to wander off how wrong he was to spend his inheritance on himself. You know, we have this poverty mindset in Christianity. You know, oh, this is God's money, I better be careful with it. I'm just a steward of God's resources. That's not true. What you have is your gift from your father. 
And when you receive a gift, you do what you please with it. You can please yourself by spending it on you. And do you know God's not upset by that? Or you can use it to bless someone else. He's not upset by that either. But it's your gift to do with as you please. And when the father gave his son his inheritance, it was no longer the father's. It was the son's to do with as he pleased. And I've come to realize that money I have or resources I have, they're God's gift to me. I spend some of it on myself. Buy nice clothes. You know, I like Hugo Boss. But I also spend it on other people. You know, we'll spend money on paying for people to, to just help them out with issues in their life. I remember the first time I ever gave someone a thousand pounds. It freaked me out. It totally freaked me out, giving someone a thousand pounds. And I was like, that's not the most we've given someone, but that was the f- first really big amount I gave away. And, and I'm like, oh my goodness. Look at my bank balance now. <laughs> I, could, I could say, no, I'm not giving that away. And, and God wouldn't have punished me for it. He wouldn't have punished it because it was mine. But I tell you something, you'll never God will never be in your debt. You know, you might go, Oh, I do all this wonderful stuff for God, and God's like, Well, I'm not in your debt. I'll give you twice back so that you can't pull me up for it. And so what the son spent was his own. It wasn't his father's anymore. And so instead of lecturing him and sitting him down, he takes him in the house and they have a party. And the guest of honour is this wayward son. And, you know, I, I grew up, never been celebrated. I never had a birthday party that I remember growing up. Most of the parties, if not all of the parties I've ever had, are ones that I've arranged. Ones that I've organised. I mean, some of them have been really good. Some of us don't know what it is to be celebrated. You know, probably one of the best experiences I had was this year. Uh, all of the leaders of Father Heart Ministries that I'm a part of, we were we all gathered in Cyprus because we're coming from all over the world. And our day off just happened to be my birthday. Um, and we were in a restaurant. And in Norway, they do this thing where... They surround you and dance around you and clap and sing about your birthday. And they did this to me in this restaurant and it just blew me away. I'm standing in this circle of all these Norwegians and they're all dancing and clapping and singing around me and and it's like everyone was looking at me. The whole restaurant looking at me. (laughs) That's what this was like for this boy. He was the centre of attention. He wasn't ragged and, and rejected. Everyone was clapping and singing because he was home. And, you know, we, don't, we think of God as this scolding, correcting, punishing, disciplining God. But he's not. He's, you know, Paul says in Romans chapter 2, it's the kindness of God 
It's the goodness of God that leads to repentance. See, the son didn't need to be rebuked because when he was loved, it changed his heart. And he thought, oh my goodness, what have I done? What would you have done if it was your kid coming home after screwing up like that and messing everything up? How would you have dealt with it? And I think, it, you know, theologically, I, I, I've struggled with this. God broke the law. Because <laughs> that flies against everything I learned at Bible school, everything I've learned as a Christian. God broke the law. <laughs> That's hilarious, isn't it? That's totally against everything we've learned as Christians. And yet it's there in the Bible. That's what he did. That. It's there in that story. He breaks all of these laws of Moses. They're there in Deuteronomy. It's not even just the laws the Pharisees made up. He's breaking laws that are written in the law of Moses that was given to Moses by God. Apparently. But Jesus said something. He said, one greater than the law stands amongst you. But the law only come in after... I mean, before the law, that's what God was like before the law. Loving and... Yeah. Yep. Exactly, Stevie. Exactly. The law... I, here's my... Here's the my, law was there to point us to him. Uh-huh, yeah, exactly. It was to show us that where we'd gone wrong so that we would say, oh my goodness, we've lost that relationship. Let's get it back. Yeah. Spot on, mate. And because what Jesus is saying is, you know, it's relationship that counts, not blind obedience. It's relationship. You know, any servant can obey orders. Any slave can move quick at the crack of a whip. But sons enjoy intimacy and relationship. And if, if all we see is ourselves as servants or as slaves being hired out, we will miss out on the intimacy of that embrace. And we can hear the voice of God, we can repeat the prophecies and all the rest of it, but any servant can do that. You know, I was saying the other day, God sent the kings and the priests and the prophets and all of those guys to speak to Israel, but none of them conveyed his heart. They just spoke the commands. You know, but Jesus came and revealed the heart of the Father, not just the, the mind, not just the words, but the heart. And in this story, he's saying, this is his heart. Look at how big his heart is. Look how kind and generous and, and good he is towards us. Look how tender he is towards us. I mean, this is outrageous. A father? You know, for Israel, God was holy, untouchable. I mean, when they wrote the name Yahweh, when they were copying out the scriptures, they would write the name Yahweh and then throw the pen away. And start, start writing with a new pen. Because that pen was now too holy to use for ordinary words. That was their image of God. And Jesus is saying, nah, he's not like that at all. You guys are, have got it all messed up. He's a papa. He's, he, he paints this picture of papa who's embracing and generous and loving and kind. Who touches and embraces and blesses. And he's saying he's not a doctrine, he's not a theory or a theology to be, that you give assent to. It's not a teaching you get a hold of and put it in your collection. He's a person that you come to know. 
He's someone you come to experience. His love is real. It's tangible. It has substance to it. We can live in that flow of being loved and experience the love in relationship that he draws us into. I want to show you a video. I wonder if this is what it's oh, if this is what it's like when um, the father embraced his son. Some of you might remember that, some of you are too young to remember that, but that was the, the Barcelona Olympics. And Derek Redmond of Great Britain was the, the favourite for the, the 400 metres gold medal. That was the semi-final. And Derek reaches 150 metres first bend and his hamstring pops. And he falls to the track. And the whole world is watching. I mean, there's a stadium full, but you know, how many millions and, or billions of people actually watch the Olympics? 
and there he is in front of the whole world he's, he's screwed up all the shame you know he's let everyone down you see the guy with the, 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 the telephoto lens they're trying to get the anguish in his face he's totally exposed and that wasn't his coach that runs out of the crowd that was his dad that was Jim Redmond who ran out on the, on the track and I always laugh at that bit as well when he's like to the guy get off don't touch him he's mine <laughs> and I imagine that that's what this father in the story was like he runs to his son because in effect what he's saying to everyone is get off he's mine don't you dare touch him you know when that happened the story the next morning wasn't that Derek Redmond failed to qualify the story was about his dad coming alongside him and actually because of that Derek Redmond is actually now a motivational speaker around the world and it wasn't his success that caused it to happen it was his failure because what his dad did was come and cover his shame and his failure in front of the whole world he wasn't ashamed to say this is my son whom I love don't you dare touch him and that's what this dad was doing with his son. He's saying, this is my son whom I love. Don't you dare touch him. Don't you dare try and stone him. Don't you dare try and expose him. Don't dare try and make some capital out of his failure or his shame. He doesn't lecture him. He doesn't tell him off. You know, Derek Edmund's dad, Jim, didn't run alongside him and go, you idiot. You stupid idiot. What have you done? You've screwed the whole thing up. Four years of training. He doesn't do that. It puts, what happened was Derek Redmond tells a story. He thought it was just another one of the officials trying to get him off the track. And he runs up behind him and, and Derek Redmond tries to shrug him off. And this is what Derek Redmond heard. It's me, son. It's me, son. And that's when he collapses into his dad's arms and stops trying to walk under his own strength and his own power. Stop limping on his own and allow himself to be carried by his father. And I think that's the place he wants us to come to, where we stop trying to limp along under our own power and allow ourselves to be carried by him. His love covers up his son's failure and shame. His love comforts him. And he hides him from the, the ridicule and exposure of the world instead of shaming his son instead of exposing instead of holding him up and saying look at what a miserable failure my son is he covers him so that people can't point and judge and accuse before anyone else can react before anyone else can condemn him or, or stone him the father himself puts his arms around him like Jim Redmond put his arms around Derek and said don't you dare touch him it was an embrace that said, I love you, I accept you, I don't care what you've done. I'm proud to be your dad and I'm proud to stand alongside you. And it doesn't matter whether you've succeeded or failed, it doesn't change my love for you. You know, we often say love needs to be tough. Sin needs to be dealt with, it needs to be seen to be dealt with. And Father does deal with sin. Well, let, let me say this, sin was dealt with 2,000 years ago. Did you know that? Sin was dealt with and punished 
if you like, 2,000 years ago. That's why Paul can say God is not counting men's sins against them because sin was dealt with. That's why Jesus destroyed the power of sin, the grave and death. <laughs> you know, and so he comes and embraces this boy, he kisses him, he covers him, he clothes him, he celebrates him, he restores him, he reinstates him because he's glad to have him home and he wants the son to know that you are loved. My love for you has never changed. And that's what he wants to bring us to, where we come to a place where we understand and see and receive that his love for us has never changed. I think our understanding of discipline in church needs to change. You know, our, our church discipline often focuses on, well, you've sinned, so I want to put you up in front of the whole church so that you can tell them how you sinned. We can embarrass you. We can shame your family as you have to repeat your sins. And then we punish you. And we limit you and we restrict you. Because we need to fix you. We need to fix this problem and we need to stop anyone else having the same problem in the future. And so we press down, we keep a watchful eye and there's the public shaming. I really have to question our so-called discipline processes when I see the way people are dealt with. Because actually what Paul writes is, when a man is caught in a sin, those of you who are spiritual should gently restore him. That's a different process from making someone stand on a platform and confess all to everyone. What I love about this father is he treats both sons equally well. It's not like the younger one's now his favourite. This angry, judgmental son is treated with the same gentleness and care and love and compassion that the younger son is. You know, he rejects his brother. He says, when this son of yours comes home. Now, if it was me and it was my boy, I would have said to the servant, hey, what? Get him in here. Get, get him in here now. Wait till I, I'm furious with him. Drag him in by the hair if you have to. But he doesn't do that. It says that the father goes out to him. He doesn't just speak kindly to him, but it says that he pleads with him. I mean, the father's coming out to this rebellious, angry, aggressive son, and he's saying, please, son, please come in. Please come and join us. Please. He's pleading with him. It's like the father is begging him when he should rightfully be standing there demanding his son behaves himself and does what he's told. That's not what he does. He pleads and says, please, son, come inside. And the son says, but no. I've never disobeyed you. Isn't that horrible to live our lives that way, thinking that I have to obey that's not a happy life. That's not fun, living obediently. And I think I'm beginning to see a side of God that is actually fun. Because, you know, my wife experienced something recently when she was made redundant and looking for a new job. And she said, she was saying to the Lord, is, 
Lord, is this job your will? And he said to her, you're asking the wrong question, Fiona. And she said, sorry? You know, I've been asking this question for 30 years. It's always worked before. <laughs> and she's saying, is this your will, Father? And he said, wrong question. And so she, over a couple of days, she began to say to him, you know, what's the right question? I, I don't know what the right question is. And he said, the question you should be asking is, will this bring me life? Will this bring me life? You see, one of the early church fathers, Arrhenius, he said, the glory of God is man fully alive. So if you want to glorify God, find the things that bring you life and do them. What brings you alive? Go and do it. And it might be nothing religious. It might be playing football. It might be going walking in the hills. It might be swimming. It might be hanging out with friends and drinking good wine or something you know and you might feel oh I love this my heart is suddenly coming alive and, and feeling something that I've never felt before do that do that and that's you in God's will that's you in God's will but this son didn't get that he thought he just had to live in obedience and he was miserable he wasn't enjoying his friends and he said you, you know you didn't even give me a, a goat to celebrate with my friends do you know what's sad? At the very beginning of Jesus' story, when the young son said, Father, give me my share of the inheritance, Jesus said he divided the property between them. The goats belonged to the older brother. They were his goats. He could take as many of them as he wanted to to have a party with his friends. But he was so stuck in this idea of, I have to be obedient, and if I'm obedient, I will get a reward. And I think we live our Christian lives that way. I need to be obedient to the Almighty God so that I will get the reward of heaven. When he's saying, I want you to have life. And life to all its fullness. Isn't that what Jesus said? I have come that they might have life and life in all its fullness. And when you find life, you find what brings you alive, then you're right in the centre of the will of God. And it's not about reward then, it's about enjoying your inheritance. It's enjoying your inheritance. And we're beginning to see, as we look at this picture, all through this story, the true nature of our Father in Heaven, the true nature of God. We begin to see what He's really like, what His heart towards us is. I mean, he thinks nothing of his own reputation to run and hug and kiss and restore his son. I don't know, perhaps he was gossiped about by the community. Do you see what he did with that rebellious boy? Do you see the way he treated him? He didn't stone him. He didn't take him to the elders for punishment. He rewarded him. He reinstated him. He gave him the ring back. And I... Th sorry. So, so you say um, that we should, what we should do is we should seek to do um, what gives us life, and yep. that's that's where we exist in God's purpose. Yep. But, but when Jesus was in the garden, um, he was saying, "I don't want to do this." Mm -hmm. And he was, he was he was to the point that he was sweating, and he was, and, mm -hmm. and he was saying, "But actually, not for me to have what I want to do, um, but for you to have what you want to do." Um, mm -hmm. Could you talk? Could you talk to that a bit? Not really. It's not. I don't think that's really relevant to to what we're talking about. Jesus was was in working in partnership with his father. I don't. Maybe that maybe that was bringing life to him. I don't know. 
because he said, "I delight to do your will." Yeah. Um, so, and uh huh, it's in his in his humanity, he felt that he felt death approaching. But I think in his spirit, in his heart, he was just so connected to his father. He was like, it doesn't matter what my humanity is after. Okay. Father, I just want to walk in this with you. Okay. And what I'm finding, I love, have you seen Chariots of Fire? You know, um, and Eric Liddell's walking in Calton Hill with his, with his sister. And his sister's giving him into trouble. She's saying, you know, God's called you for a purpose. And what about China? And what about the mission field? And all of this thing. He said, yeah, I know. I know that. She said, well, what's all this about all this sports stuff? Because Eric Liddell wasn't just a runner. Before he became a, an Olympic runner, he was an international rugby player for Scotland. And he said, I know that. I know all of that. God did make me for the, that purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. You see, running brought him alive, not just in a selfish kind of way. I guess that's what I'm talking about. It's yeah, not a selfish kind of... It's not a selfish and self-indulgent thing, being alive like that. But he wept, he felt so connected to God, his father, when he ran. To such a degree, he said, when I run, I feel his pleasure. What brings you life? What brings you alive where you feel the pleasure of God over you? I guess that, that's what I mean when I'm talking about that, Ben. Yeah. Well, we together, we go for a quick breakfast on a Saturday morning. And I feel God's pleasure in that. Yeah. So it's not a great breakfast. Yeah, it's just in hanging out, isn't it's it? It's being together. Yep. And it's you feel yep. like, yeah, this is what God this is God likes this. It's yep. it's pleasurable to to see us yep. enjoy ourselves, hanging out and just, you know, not doing anything yep. particularly productive, but yeah. enjoying life. And that that's it. I think that's the key. We always think we have to be productive. And something like that. Brené Brown quoted someone and she said, um, what is the opposite? Of play. What's the opposite of play? Work. That's what I thought too. That's what I told my wife, and she said, "No." Brene Brown said, "The opposite of play is depression, because if what you're worth depends upon what you produce, you will never have fun, because fun doesn't produce anything. Like you say, hanging out with that together is fun, but what's it producing?" <laughs> Other than a bit of joy and a bit of fun, and yet, and yet, and and yet, you're saying, "I know God is there. Yeah. I feel His pleasure in this." It's like you know when brothers dwell together in unity, there God commands the blessing, and it's like it's feeling that joy. And this son didn't know that. He had never entered into that place where he felt the Father's pleasure and joy over his life, because he was in that place of depression. There was no play, no joy, no fun, because it was all about obedience and being productive. Perhaps he resented his brother because he ran away and he had to do his own share of work and his brother's share of work. I don't know. But I love the father says to him, but son, you're always with me. Everything I have is yours. And he's not demanding that either of the sons learn right behaviour. He's not forcing them to make the good moral choices and develop character. He's not putting any of that weight upon them. He's not putting those... So say you're in a job, yeah? Uh Uh-huh. For instance, and your heart's not in that job, and you don't want to be there, yeah? You're better off being in a job you want to be in. Yeah. 
you're going to be miserable, Stevie, aren't you? It's not going to be good. And think some finding what you like. Exactly. Yeah. And going for that. And so many people do that, don't they? They'll, they'll take a job that's got less money simply because they find it more fulfilling. Yeah. Rather than being in a job where they're making money, but they hate it. Yeah. And they hate life. Yeah. And it's like this older boy was in that kind of job, but he, yeah. he just hated life. Yeah. And all the father wanted was for them to know that they were loved and to find something that would bring them alive in his love. And I think what we're discovering is that no matter what we've done or where we've been, we are his sons and daughters, and his love for us has never changed. That's what I see in this story. You know, that Jesus is saying, this is what your heavenly father is like. I've given you little glimpses and little pictures of his generosity, but here is the fuller picture of what he's really like. This is the father that I know. This is the father that I want to reveal to you. And I don't think we've understood the place we hold in his affections. It's not just that God likes us because he's God and he has to. He actually likes you. He likes being with you. When you guys are hanging out, God loves to hang out with you. And he's not giving you plans to change the world. He's just hanging out <laughs> and fellowshipping like he fellowshiped with Adam in the garden. You know, he wasn't given, and I don't think God was giving Adam plans for world domination to be a history changer and, a, and all that kind of stuff. I think he was just hanging out with him and sharing his heart and Adam sharing his heart and asking questions and I think that's what was happening. John, do you think, oh, sorry, sorry, I'm speaking like, sorry, sorry. Right. Um, you, is, is, there, is there a danger, because right? for me, right, life would be like driving up and down in a Lamborghini with the music blasting, like, I love it, do you know what I mean? Um, but I'm going, I'm not sure I'm dying to myself then. Are, are you are you feeling father's pleasure when you're doing that? Yeah, but like, from, like but me, but I, I like so the so the eleven of the twelve disciples were crucified, right? Um, and so, or they were killed for their faith, and they were mm -hmm. killed for what it was that they believed, and and because they were so offensive and all the rest of it, mm -hmm. and so I'm sure they felt the father's love in what they were doing. I'm sure, mm -hmm. um, but is there is there not a danger that we go? Do you know what? Where, where's the where's the line between look, I, I feel the father's joy I feel the father's joy if I'm if I'm cracking on and I'm um, you know just sitting at home watching Jeremy Kyle all day I, like, I know that like, I, I, I don't know how anybody can feel pleasure watching <laughs> Jeremy Kyle drink, drink, drinking a coke you know I mean I, like that for me is is, is is where I feel relaxed and I, I feel the father's love in that way cool is there not is there not a sort of a surely there must be a, a point at which we're going Look, there's got to be some sort of dying to myself in this because if I'm not, if I'm not dying to what it is that I like, but that to do, but that comes out of relationship. Yeah, striving, strive, you can strive to kill things in, within yourself, or you can live out of relationship, yeah. and your attitude changes. Yeah. And we've spent so much of our Christian lives trying to do the disciplines that will change me, yeah. when actually the scriptures are very clear that it's the Lord who changes us, and that happens in relationship. So you find the place where you find his pleasure and he will begin to share his heart with you. Yeah. And it may lead you into, and like I said before, it's not that we, he gives us a ministry, but we become a ministry. And so you might drive up and down driving a Lamborghini, yeah. but what will he have you doing with that yeah. to impact other people? Yeah. 
Do you, do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, it's, it's not. Good. It's not just a selfish thing, yeah. but it becomes something bigger than just me finding life. Okay. But it starts at find, finding what brings you life. What I'm nervous about a little bit is like, oh, do you know what? There's 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 animosity from that area or whatever, or there's there's a there's there's a battle in that area. I'm enjoying doing it, but there's a battle in, in it. So do you know what? Because that's that battle's not giving me life. Do you know what? I want to avoid it. Do you see what I mean? But so, but I I find what I'm finding Ben is that. As I walk with him and, and as I, the things that do bring me life, I'm finding the things that I used to encounter that would be distressful or disturbing to me, I don't even notice it anymore. Like the instance that I shared when that, my friend said that person was being horrible to me, I didn't even notice they were being horrible to me. I was just, I'm just living in this place where, no, I wish I lived there more often. Sometimes I pop out and visit that other place, you know. But, but more and more I'm finding that the life that I'm finding in, in him is leading me in, into situations where I don't notice the animosity. I don't feel the, the anger or, or the resentment or any of those things. It's, it's almost like I'm not blind to it, but I just, it's just not having any impact upon me because I'm learning what it is to dwell in that place where I'm finding life in him. And it's, it's changing my whole being. It's changing my outlook. And so I'm not, I'm not having to make force myself go. Oh, and I need to, I need to stop that because that's not good for me. And that I need to die to that. And and I've tried all that, and it didn't work. Yeah. It didn't work for me, you know. And um, what I'm finding is that as I live in the place of being loved by Him, doing the things that bring me life, He leads me into all kinds of adventures. Um, and so I get, I get that because when I came into this, I thought the same. Yeah. Because I thought, well. God, if I don't make plans, how does anything get done? And yet it does. I'm not, I'm not no, no, I know what you mean. I'm, 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 just, I'm just worried that if there's, there's a people group that, look, they need, they need the love and reality of who Jesus is. But you know what? They're, like, they're, to be honest, they're a bunch of knobs. Like, do you know what I mean? And, and if yeah. I'm speaking with them and I'm sharing life with them and all the rest of it, yes, I'm in a relationship with Father. And yes, I'm experiencing in his goodness. And, and I, I, I get his joy and all the rest of it. But you know what? That's just difficult. But do you know what? The more you live in that place of where you find life, the more that you will find those people are less difficult than they used to be. No, they haven't changed. What's happened is his love is changing our hearts. And and I know what you mean. You, there's people I, th- I used to think were idiots, and I, and I love them now. And, and yet, from one perspective, they're still idiots. <laughs> I just don't see the idiocy the same way, you know. And it's... And I think that's the thing for me. It's, it's more that living out of that place of being loved, living in the things that bring me life, is changing me and changing my perspective so that he can take me into those places. And it's not a drudgery. It's not just about obedience. It's just like, Dad, what are we doing today? And he's like, we're going here. Yes, can't well, wait. You know. You love that, and yeah, for them people to want to change that. Uh-huh, yep, exactly, exactly, mate. Yeah, as the love begins to touch you, it begins to spread out and touch them. Yeah. Um, I'm gonna have to go soon, just because like hard to soon at quarter two. I was just wondering, um, is there any? Do you do any? Still do that teaching on Psalm 22? I did it on Tuesday night. Oh, um, I but Chris has got the recording. Okay, I was gonna start there. Chris has got the recording. Okay, and so, it's not about the obedience. It's not about the performance. It's about living in that place of being loved and welcomed and it transforms us so that yeah that it's not that we run away from the difficult things but we dwell in the, the love and our hearts are changed 
And so, scripture comes to mind if you love me, you love it, you know. Yep. And so that love that God loves me with, then I'm loving him back with the love he's loving me with, and then obedience becomes a byproduct. Yeah, yeah, it's just yeah, exactly, Steve. It's just a, it just becomes a natural part of your life. You don't even think of it as obedience. It's just like, well, this is what me and Father do together when we hang out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, me and Father, we just we just love hanging out with those guys there, or, or you know, we love hanging out with the gay crowd, or we love hanging out with the bikers, or and just talking about my life with God with them. It's not even that you're going out to witness. You're just you're just living your life, and it's just overflowing. Yeah, that's it. Spot on, yeah. mate. You've good insights today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's been good. Yeah. And he just wants us to know that we're loved. And I, I, I kind of, I don't think this is what happened. Um, with, where is it? Uh, I don't think this is what happened, but um, I want to play this video because it kind of evokes in me this sense of welcoming and, and everything else. And when I've done this, what I want to do is just pray. I want to pray for you guys individually if if you want that, and just put, I'm just going to put my arms around you and just say, can you come as a little boy or girl who needs to be loved? And I'm just going to pray, Father, let these arms of mine be your arms around Stevie or around Ophelia or you know whoever it is that, that comes, and it doesn't take long, you know, would it take a minute for for something to be imparted and, and for your heart to begin to open up to receive that? And just so as we do that, just come hungry, <laughs> saying yeah. I'm that little boy, I'm that little girl and I need that love. Amen. Let's play this.